right, let's go. Welcome to The Dad Presents, where we pledge allegiance only to family and principles. All right, guys, in just a few minutes, we're going to be spreading love and liberty with Dr. Juliet Engel. Dr. Engel is a survivor of child sex trafficking, and guys, this interview was just absolutely bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it yet, but she was a fascinating woman, and you got to give it a listen. Uh, but first, I want to give you guys thanks for participating in this show and listening. You're, you're good people, and we're growing every week, and I'm so very grateful. Thank you so much. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, please click the subscribe buttons. And if you're listening on YouTube, this is the first time ever we're going to post the entire episode. Uh, intro, music, everything. We're finally figuring it out. Yes, I have two microphones, one for the YouTube, one for the iTunes, because I'm 48 years old and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying. So thank you so much for the support, guys. Um, what's going on in the world of being a dad? Well, California had a school walkout this week to protest vaccine mandates. And uh, the night before this, I gave my, my kids a presentation on body autonomy. And I talked about the statistical risks of COVID, the risks of the shot, the knowns, the unknowns, the personal cost of what skipping school might cost them, uh, especially on a day when you have tests like one of my kids did. And then I let them decide what they wanted to do. Uh, Some friends thought it was a little crazy to let children decide what they wanted to do on this, but I don't think it would be much of a lesson on body autonomy if I told them what to do. Now, what I expected is... I expected my nine-year-old to stay home because he's kind of a a punky goof. And I expected the 12-year-old to go because he's a super dork. Um, He's a straight-A student, super nerd. He doesn't like to get in trouble, and he plays it straight. But the reverse happened. Um, The nine-year-old elected to go because he wanted to go, and my 12-year-old elected to take a stand, and I was super proud of him. Now, the bride was not happy with the whole situation. She's she's a, a goody-goody. Now, she's not down with the kids getting vaccinated, which they're planning on doing California, hence the purpose of the walkout. She's not happy with that, but she also doesn't, she doesn't like to push boundaries. And I get that. I get that. It's scary. It's scary to fight back, and I understand. So she was very unhappy with the whole situation, even though we discussed it ahead of time and came to an agreement that we would do this and let them choose. She was unhappy. So the next day, I had to buy her lobster because... Yeah, now feeding the bride expensive exotic food is how I always get out of trouble, quite honestly. But I was super proud of my son for taking a stand for liberty. Uh, He had a test that day. He had two tests that day. He had to take two zeros, ruin his straight A's. And and I couldn't be more proud of him. Now, the principal was sure to let us know that his absence was unexcused and that if he gets too many more of those, he's going to be expelled. And, you know, look, man. We don't care about the A. You know, if you expel our kid, it's your loss. You can you can take your government-issued report card and stick it up your salty vagina. My son learned a very valuable lesson on that day. And uh, whatever they were teaching in English class takes a backseat to what he learned that day. Some life lessons are more important than grades. He learned to take a stand for something he believes in. And he does believe in it. I don't fill my kids' heads with ideas. I tell them what I think. I tell him the other opinions. I make him examine all sides and come to his own conclusions. Um, so yeah, so they're coming for your kids, guys. Uh, and they're not just stopping with the twelve-year-olds now. 
They're they're not like that. That's where they took it. You know, it was just adults. It was just it was just the at risk population. Then it was the adults. Now they're they're moving on to all twelve year olds in California, and soon they're gonna make it the five year olds, and then it'll be the babies. It'll be everyone. And I know this because Fauci told us. I mean, he was recently asked why seventy percent of COVID deaths in Britain are amongst the vaccinated people. Did you hear that? Let's. Let's listen to the clip. I spoke with my British colleagues just uh, several days ago trying to find out what that's all about. It's at least partially explained by the fact that they don't vaccinate their children, the younger children. And what they're seeing is spread among children, which for the most part, at least 50 percent is without symptoms. But children are then spreading it to members of the family. So they're seeing people getting infected. So right now they're re-examining what their policy is going to be about vaccinating children. Yeah, guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's the kids' fault. It's the children's fault, and now they got to vaccinate all of them. Hey, yo, Tony, it's because of the kids. Give a little baby some vaccination and a pizza pie. Freaking Fauci. I'm Italian, and that's an that's a terrible Italian accent. I we went to Italy a couple of years ago, and I loved it how they would call our kids everywhere "la baby, la baby." I got a kick out of that. My kid at the time was, I think they were seven and ten. Uh, I thought that was pretty cute. Anyway, guys, they're coming for your kids. They are coming for your kids. There is no reason to vaccinate a child for COVID. Unless that child has something, has a comorbidity, is massively obese or or has cancer or something, there's no reason. No children have died from COVID without comorbidities. Even with comorbidities, there's less than 500 children have died worldwide, less than die from the flu. Do you have any idea of how many kids have died in the past year from murder and suicide and drug drug overdoses. It's gone up something like tenfold. That means 10 times. That means last year, if there were 10 murders of children, this year there were 100. Tenfold, 10 times the previous amount in all those categories. And that is not unrelated to the depression in our society as a result of all these lockdowns, these mask mandates, they're just building depression into society. They're, they're ruining our children. And we got to take a stand. You go to schools now, the kids are afraid to touch each other. We, we cannot allow this to keep going on. And what else is going on? You've got homeless people camping out on school playgrounds now. And that's, we're just supposed to accept it like that's normal life now. I'm sorry, we should, I, I can't call them, can't call them homeless people. They're not, they're not homeless anymore. They are unhoused. <laughs> they're unhoused, right? The, the, the people who live at your kid's school playground and shoot up drugs all day on the sliding board and then fornicate under the monkey bars and then takes a fat shit on the swings, they're not homeless. They're unhoused. <sighs> replacing words, changing what we call things, it doesn't change the situation. Do you think these zillions of homeless drug addicts who are shooting up a muscle beach care 
what you call them? Or do you think they're more concerned about how to get their next fix and the fact that they don't have a roof over their heads? Now, I'm a, I'm a compassionate and empathetic man. I, I was directly involved in working with the homeless for many, many years, both with my work and both with charities on the weekends with homeless people and drug addicts on Skid Row. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not coming at this from a, a heartless angle. These people need help. But changing the language as we do with everything else in society, labeling the word homeless as the N-word for the unhoused, that does nothing to solve the problem. It does nothing to help them. What it does is it makes people in society feel better about doing nothing. It de-escalates the problem by giving it a name that sounds less obtuse and less um, terrible de-escalates the urgency of the problem, even though you can go outside and see that the problem is becoming worse. These, these, these homeless people, they're not unhoused people who are just willy-nilly camping out on the beach and, and singing Kumbaya together. They're drug-addled, mentally ill people living in open-air drug markets. That's what these places are. They're open-air drug markets. You can go down to Venice Beach right now, and you can buy three grams of heroin and not get arrested for it. And that's the truth. They have decriminalized drugs three grams and under. And that's fine. I'm for drug decriminalization. I'm for ending the drug war, right? I believe in decriminalizing drugs, but you decriminalize it. And then you spend the money that you are throwing away on the drug war to build programs to help people and fix society, but they're not interested in fixing things. They're not. And how do I know they're not? Well, by their actions. Every action they take contributes to the problem. Did you know that there's more laws and more severe penalties for starting a business in California and not getting all the appropriate licenses and permits that are, that are necessary? The penalties for, for me, if I want to start another business again, the penalties to me for not getting the appropriate permits and licenses will be stiffer than the penalties for shooting drugs into my veins at my kid's playground. That's the truth. Stiffer penalties. Life is all about the carrot and the stick, you know? People are motivated by, it. it's like how we raise our kids. Any parent knows this, right? You raise your kid when they do something bad, you punish them. You punish them, you punish that behavior to discourage the behavior. That's how they learn. This behavior is bad. They don't know it inherently. A kid does not know inherently that he shouldn't pull uh, Katie's hair in, in preschool. He pulls Katie's hair, you punish him. He learns to not do that behavior because he will get punished. The kid shares his toy at recess with uh, little Jimmy. You reward that behavior. You need to punish bad behavior and reward good behavior. Every parent knows this. Yet somehow in Sacramento, they got it twisted. They got it twisted. They are rewarding debauchery and bad behavior. They are rewarding bad behavior. If I get rewarded for my bad behavior, if I go camp on the beach and buy some drugs and have a good old time and shoot them up, and for that, you 
section off a part of the beach and say, this is now yours. Well, guess what? You've rewarded my behavior and I'm going to keep shooting drugs and camping on the beach. That's how that works, Sacramento. I mean, this is not the future I want for my kids. We, we love this state. We love it. it California, guys, if, if you've not been here, it's the most beautiful place in America. And I've been everywhere in America. It's the spot. You got the oceans. You got the mountains. You got the perfect climate. You got the ladies in the honey pies. California is amazing. But this is not the future I want for my kids. I don't want to have to worry about them going to the park to play baseball and some drug-addled mental patient mistakes their baseball mitt for an outhouse. You know what I'm saying? Life is about the carrot and the stick, and we are rewarding the wrong things in society. Sacramento, you suck at being parents. Um, I usually like to make my intro a little bit funny. Uh, didn't do that. I'm sorry. I'm, I guess I'm just in a salty mood. Everything that's going on with our kids and the way they are trying to slam these vaccines into my kids' bodies when my kids don't want them and I don't want them for my kids, it just has me in a salty mood. So I apologize. But we're going to get into this interview and you're going to you're gonna love Dr. Engel. She's, I don't know if you will believe her or not believe her. I'm just going to tell you she's freaking fascinating and and. It was one of the most fascinating conversations I've had. Uh, so a word from the sponsors, and then we'll get into it, okay? We got the Red Pill Expo. Guys, I only found out about the Red Pill Expo recently. The last two guests, uh, uh, Edward Griffin and now Dr. Engel, are from the Red Pill Expo. It is a, a meeting of great minds uh, where liberty is being put on the stage and they're talking about the importance of liberty and the importance of morality and the importance of loving thy neighbor and the importance of breaking free from the shackles the government is putting on us today. Uh, I encourage you to go to redpillexpo.com and check it out. I will be going next year to the expo because it sounds phenomenal. We are also brought to you by sheathunderwear.com. Uh, anyone who listens to the show, you guys know how I feel about sheath. I mean, look at me. If you're on YouTube right now, you can now look at me on YouTube. Am I a sexy man or what? I mean, let's be honest, right? I'm not too shabby. 48 year old man looking at you right now at 46 before sheath underwear. Dude, I was a four out of 10 at best. Sheath underwear has turned my, my life around. I used to go out with my wife. We'd go out in public and, and dudes would look at my wife and, uh, and I'd get insecure because my wife is a smoke show, guys. She's a smoke show. And I was a shabby four. And I would get insecure because someone was going to steal her. But now I got my sheath on and guys, I'm a dime piece. The dad is a dime piece. And now I go out in public with the bride and I look like I belong with that woman. Sheathunderwear.com, code word dad for 20% off. And let's get into it. Dr. Julia Engel, MD, is one of the most fascinating people we've had on this show. She's a featured speaker at the upcoming Red Pill Expo. And she's the author of Angels Over Moscow and Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic. Uh, Dr. Engel is the founder of the Angel Coalition in Moscow fighting against human trafficking, and she herself is a survivor. So, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Glad yeah. to be here. 
Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about asking you some questions. Uh, just, I mean, I just looked over your bio. I just ordered your book. Um, <laughs> full disclosure. I, I've, I've not read it. I ordered it yesterday. I'm going to read it because your life story, it just, it reads like a James Bond movie. Um, when I hear about sex trafficking, I think when anybody does, what we assume is that like children are being stolen from parents in Thailand and forced into slavery. But this is happening here in America, too. Now, you grew up in Seattle and you're from what I understand, your father sold you to the CIA at age six and they put you into their sex magic program. Um, is that yes. true? And is your father fully aware of what he was getting you into? He was. We never were able to talk about it. So um uh, and he's dead now, which is one of the reasons that I felt like I, I could come out and talk about it. Yes, that's true. And uh, I think it's it's much more widespread than people realize. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, when you say that you were you were sold um, to the CIA, you mean the CIA literally paid money to your dad to own you. So our CIA is literally enslaving people. Is that is that correct? It's a very simplified way of looking at it. Uh, these were programs in the started in the 1950s. They were, you know, the after the war, all the German scientists were um, tried and then distributed right. between the former Soviet Union and the United States. And the doctors, uh, the Scientists who experimented on people in the concentration camps were brought here under Project Paperclip. Right. And four of my great uncles were German-speaking OSS agents. So they helped in the resettling of these refugee scientists in the United States. And then what happened was uh, they had they came up, they went to John Foster Dulles with proposals to uh, create a cadre of uh, intelligent future leaders that could be completely mind controlled. And I, I think we have that right now. And uh, so yeah. <laughs> they, they yeah. convinced uh, senior intelligence officials and high level military officials to uh, basically sign up their children. And that's exactly what happened to me. And uh, my whole family was largely involved in this. Other wow. cousins were put into this program and many people that you see I think doing things that seem irrational now were also raised in this program. So, so officially, you you were quote signed up, but there's an exchange of money in this deal. There was an exchange of money, and when I was six years old, my father made me watch the exchange of money, and then the person that bought me raped me in front of them, and he told me when I was screaming for help, he told me, "No, nah, this is what I raised you for." I will. That's my sort of the last time I considered him my my father, Jesus. my protector. Good lord! I mean that. That's. But it's not an unusual I story. I can't even comprehend that. That's that's no. so okay. So you 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 mentioned Operation Paperclip. I've I've read about this before. It's after the war. Uh, we brought a lot of the Nazi scientists to America, including some of the the the, the top guys. Like that's not debated. Everybody knows this. So you're mm -hmm. saying. They were they were incorporated into the CIA, and these programs were started by these people. Yes, they were, and uh, uh, some people estimate up to 12, 1,200 of these scientists that had done these uh, programs in concentration camps were brought to the United States, and 
and this is no secret, through no. the office of John Foster Dulles, mm. and then under the direct control of the CIA, which was his brother, Alan Dulles, they funded 149 different mind control projects. You know, the Nuremberg trials had just finished, and in 1947, the Nuremberg Code made it illegal under international law to conduct experiments on humans who were not, who were either unwitting, unwilling or unwitting. Yeah. And of course, then in the United States, they ignored it completely, immediately. So by yeah. 1953, these MKUltra programs kicked off. And uh, by 1975, when the church committee, that's Senator Frank Church, looked at this, they discovered that thousands of Americans had been put into these programs and thousands of children. And then the CIA promptly destroyed all of the records under Richard Helms, you know, sort of a, what does it matter? Um, right. Right. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine how it must feel as a parent, you know, this is the dad presents. We, we talk a yes. lot about parenthood. I can't imagine how I can't imagine doing that for one. I can't imagine you as a child, how that must've felt to be given away by your father. I guess you can only at that point become completely defeated and uh, accept what your situation and, and buy in, or you go stronger and fight it. You obviously grew stronger. Where did you find the strength to fight back against that? Well, you do two things. You uh, dissociate, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make you dissociate so that you right. separate yourself into different identities. Sure. It's, it seems like if you do that, they win. No, not necessarily. They can. They can win. And they and they do to a large extent. And I was in the program for 11 years. So I, I escaped mm -hmm. and then went my own way. I believe I did. And and uh, but they they control your body. There's nothing you can do. You can't defend yourself with your body, your small body against these big people and these forces. But your spirit is something completely different. So I suffered in my body constantly, but my spirit grew stronger and stronger. And I, in my book, um, Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic, which is this one, mm -hmm. I uh, talk about how I spent most of my childhood trying to find my way to God, finding all the different routes to God and being defeated and discouraged and, and uh, pushed back. But it, it made my spirit stronger. So I have to say that I, I still suffer, suffer a lot with uh, physical problems left over from that period. But um, yeah, I've got, I'd say I've got a tough spirit. <laughs> I, I would say so. Like I, I, I would imagine that would have to crush 99% of, of children who go through that. Like you must have an, an incredibly inner strength and fortitude in you. Um, okay. So yeah, sex. I think it does. Hmm? Sex, the sex magic program, what, what actually is that? Well, sex, the sex magic program is they took strong kids with a lot of smarts and, and, uh, um, I was a pretty little girl. So they put me in a program to become like a honeypot mm -hmm. only, uh, they called it, they, this was, uh, the real program V R I L where they were creating, very attractive, sexy scientists. I mean, a lot of the James Bond. So just heroines. like in a movie, just like yeah. Just well, like that's that. based on that. That's that's Jeez. where that where it came from, of course. Uh -huh. But this was really happening, and and 
if you look at the wives of various world leaders, particularly in the former Soviet Union, who married these gorgeous Western women who had yeah. really no reason to marry these right. buffoons, that, that's who they are. That's where they came from. And so it was a, it was a, that's a rather ancient program. You know, you raise up concubines and hand them off to your enemy, but that's, that's what mm-hmm. sex magic was. And okay. uh, so I, I had an interesting education. I, I was in public school, different public schools all over the country and in Canada. So I was never in one place very long, but all during that time, I would be in school one wait, day wait, 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 longer. Wait. So, so while you're in this program, you're also in public school. Yes. They're not concerned you're going to blab or go tell the principal or. Oh, I did constantly. It didn't make any just, difference. People don't believe you. No, they don't. They didn't then. You would it's tell principals and they would just dismiss it as a hysterical young child or what? Yes. I would go to churches and tell people I would, I was constantly telling people and, and uh, yeah, nobody believes a child. Wow. 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 So you escaped at 17. What do, what do you mean by escaped? How did you escape? I literally escaped. I, they, they, um, I was at a music promotion the music business, you know, Hollywood is big into this. Yeah. And it's all part of the satanic worship and the, the drugs. And I was at a at a um, record promotion party. They used to bring us in and they call us party favors. So we wore mini skirts and danced around with flowers and did backup vocals for really big bands. It was the the journeyman, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the birds. Um, and it was a whole quality band and uh, one of the musicians as an aside was charles manson <laughs> but who was on a work release program from foster island but anyway um in the middle of the night uh, my handler drove in and uh, drove through the gate the electronic gate and crashed his car into a fountain he was totally drugged out so i got in the car drove it turned around i had to take him with me because i couldn't get him out of the car and drove up the coast all the way to Grant's Pass and then got on a bus and went to Seattle. But in the car, I found he'd been selling LSD in town around Carmel and Monterey. And I found the drug money. And I also, he he had green stamps. I don't know if you're old enough to to remember green stamps, but SNH green stamps, there were thousands of them in the car. So I basically went to uh, matriculated myself and at the university of Washington um, using the drug money, and uh, I bought all my clothes and everything with green stamps. Wow. And then, then I didn't know what I was going to do because I couldn't. The thing about the the mind control programs is the biggest thing you do is forget. So you don't remember. You, you survive by forgetting. I mean, you couldn't walk around. I couldn't walk around hauling all that stuff with me all the time. No, I would come out of it. I'd be anemic and kind of beat up and and uh, sick in school all the time, but I'd forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I did remember and tried to tell people, it just it made me sound like a crazy person. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can yeah. imagine. So, all right. So you, you forgot your memories. You recovered them later. We're, we're getting into that, but I'm sure, like as you're coming out, this this sounds um, unbelievable. But you're not you're not some just like random, but you're a doctor, you're a medical doctor. You've started foundations. You, you're, you're a writer. 
I'm sure your character has been attacked for coming out with this story. I'm sure there's been coordinated attacks. Um, how do you deal with those attacks? And do you have any like actual hard proof or is that is is the lack of that why they just let you run your mouth? I think they- probably the latter. It was sort of like when I was doing all the sunny trafficking work in Russia, as long as I wasn't too effective as in, in their in their eyes, in the mafia uh, mafia's eyes, they let me do it. I'm sure it'll get worse as I get more inf- effective, which I plan on doing. And I don't care what anybody says. I, I'm speaking the truth. Yeah. In terms right. of- Well, you care in that do? you want to be, you want your message to be believed so it can be effective, right? Like if, if people don't believe you, then your your, your message is dismissed. So you, you do want it to be believed. Well, this country had better believe that this is going on, that human trafficking is happening, yes. that, the, that the CIA and, and the, you know, I, I say CIA, I mean all of them. It's a big crime syndicate and it runs on the blood of children. And if we don't clean this up, we're not a country. So I'm yeah. not going to shut up. It's it's amazing. Like this country right now today is, is absolutely a obsessed with the narrative of racism like our, our country's history of slavery it finds its way into every single every single story they somehow tie it into to racism and and the history of slavery but we have slavery going on today right under our noses not just in other countries right here in America so why does the mainstream media just completely ignore this are they unaware are they in on it too what's what's the deal I don't know. I, I haven't followed mainstream media since the 1980s when I realized they were all owned by, at that time, 13 corporations. Now it's like six, or yeah. maybe they're all owned by Pfizer at this point. But um, I, I haven't paid any attention to them. And and I lived in Russia for 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, Russia got persistently better. Their human rights got better. They're, they're cleaning up the, their human trafficking. Every aspect of Russia got better. And then when I came back here, I felt like I'd gone back to Russia in the 90s. That, that why, you know, I, I had no, I really didn't realize how bad it was yeah, because so I didn't follow mainstream media. So I was following yeah. Russian news. Right. So let's get, let's get into a little bit of that. So you went, you, you became a doctor and then yeah. you, 1999, you just decided you went you went to Russia and you founded the Angel Coalition, um, which is an, an underground railroad for victims of human trafficking. So I'm, I'm wondering, number one, how do you find victims of human trafficking and, and what do you do to save them? Well, that was sort of a, a very short version. I'll give you a few more steps is that I was invited to Russia in 1990 as a physician. Okay. They they had a, a, a citizens diplomacy exchange and they wanted me to come. And and at that time, I was a radiologist and a professor, not a, an assistant professor at the University of Washington in radiology. I'd done a lot of research, had a lot of papers. So um, I was invited in, in that aspect. And they, I became the first American physicians into their birthing system. So they're into their birth houses where they just horrible things were happening. And and when I came back, I couldn't let it go. At well, that such time, such as what you say, horrible things. What like what was happening? Oh, um, the way women were treated, the pregnant women were treated. There was no prenatal care. The hospitals were filthy. Um, during delivery, there was no anesthetic. 
no uh, episiotomy equipment. Women would tear and they couldn't repair it. Um, just one example, they, women would go through these traumatic births and the babies needed to be cleaned up and, and you know, they need to have their noses sucked out. They need to be warmed. And uh, I discovered that they were taking the mothers, putting them on one side of a abandoned hall, basically, and the babies on the other side and doing nothing, not even covering them with a blanket and just waiting two hours. And if either the mother or the baby died, it was considered a complication of pregnancy. If it lived for two hours, then they had to do something about it. But I mean, the damage that was done in that period uh, mm-hmm. to the mothers who were bleeding from the vaginal tears and the babies that were too cold and, and uh, catching pneumonias, it, it was appalling. So I couldn't let it go. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely couldn't let it go. And I, and I think my impetus to like, I can't stand the sight of this kind of abuse of children came from my own background, even if I didn't remember it mm-hmm. at the time, it was just something I couldn't let go. And from the hospitals is how I discovered that children were being um, abandoned by their uh, encouraged and financially compensated for abandoning their children to orphanages. Wow. And, they would pay parents to just leave their kids. Yeah. Leave their kids. And then and they, parents and there were desperate parents and they would, they would accept yeah. them. Yeah. They would believe wow. that their lives well, you see would that be in, better. All over Asia too. Yeah. They, yeah. they promised, mm-hmm. you know, they'll have a better chance. They'll have an education. Everything will be taken yeah. care of and you can come get them when you get your life together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but by that lie. time, the child's been sold on. They don't know where it is. And <sighs> then uh, the massive number of children that are sold through the orphanage system from the, from Russia and other former republics is massive. Well, I know that I know that personally, I know that to be factually true because I've met at least out here in Los Angeles, at least three uh, Russian people in my industry in healthcare who were previously uh, uh, trafficked. And human rights. So I know that happens a lot in Russia specifically. Um, now you, you you said that you escaped. You had no memory of your childhood for for many years. When you say you have no memory, like what exactly do you mean? Like it was it was a blank, or you blocked out the hard parts, and and how did the memories come back to you? It was a total blank. And uh, I would say that um, after medical school, and I was. I was 30 years old in Seattle in 1978 and um, very successful. I mean, that my group of friends included like Bill Gates and Paul Allen and the Brotmans who started Costco and the Schultzes who started um, Starbucks and all, all. It was just an exciting entrepreneurial time to be in Seattle. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I was in this group that was on top of the world. Yeah. And, and then my daughter was born, and I was holding this tiny little replica of me. And then I really needed to know about my childhood. You know, like, how do, how do you take care of this helpless little thing? So there was just, like, emptiness Nothing. in there. There was no no recollection of anything. Just no. Just blank slate. Blank slate. And then is that from is that from drugs they gave you, or is that you protecting yourself? Like it's both of those things. Certainly, they they did a lot of experimentation, and this is all documented in the church hearings. 
a lot of men, uh, documentation on memory destroying drugs. Mm-hmm. And they took people and they destroyed, they took adults and destroyed their memories and they never came back. I mean, they just, they obliterated wow. people's lives, and left them with empty heads. Right. They couldn't even sue because they couldn't remember why they were suing. So, yeah, I, I'm sure it was a combination of that, but also just this horrible feeling that whenever I did remember something, it was so hideous that uh, I didn't. I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. Just... Well, I mean, uh, people people don't even realize like a perfect example in society is the, the Unabomber. He was a product of this kind of thing. And that's not like a, a far out there conspiracy like you can read the government documents the unabomber was a product of like the the cia lsd studies no yeah so i mean we know this happens you can read government documents that say this happens so if it's happening sometimes it's probably happening a lot so okay so you get you get your memories back you're in russia you start this foundation you're you're helping girls and uh, you're, you're, you're helping girls escape, or you find out that girls are being sold to Scandinavia as sex slaves. Um, what did you guys do to help them? Well, at that time, actually, I didn't remember it. It wasn't until um, I came back from Russia, like 20 years later, that I oh, got really? all of my memories. I got oh, enough. Wow. Okay. I got enough to function. And I don't think anybody would ever look at me and realize how def- deficient I was. But I was, and and uh, but I was driven to do things. And one of the things I was driven to do was to go, uh, basically uh, organize a little team of Americans. And we went throughout Russia on buses and went to villages and talked to people about uh, and gathered information and informed these poor isolated villages where all these traffic people or where we assumed the traffic children were coming from Mm -hmm. what was going on and um, gained a tremendous amount of information and started. And and I realized that the people, and and the same thing applies in this country, this, this will happen here too, that, that it'll, it will be a coalition of concerned individuals in fact, I follow Telegram. That's where I get my news. So there's a coalition of concerned individuals who are yes. working on different different aspects of things. But uh, it'll be individuals who who form uh, coalitions that would include ours, included education, um, law enforcement, not the institution, but individual law enforcement officers who'd lost someone or really cared, government officials who cared. Um, and all the way up to the top of the of the Russian government and Russian media, so it was a it was an alternate society within the society, and it got to be huge, and it it covered a lot of issues. But but the the main issue, our reason for existing, was to work together because we had no money. I mean, a lot of these people didn't even have telephones, mm-hmm. so um, to work together to find trafficking victims to get the information usually from family contacts about who's been trafficked and where to contact we could contact international law enforcement so this became an international effort and uh, after a while our our team was working with law enforcement in 48 countries so um that's great yeah it was great and and it's still going on and and we could um we then enlisted the russian consulates 
Mm-hmm. And they have a requirement to assist Russian citizens. So we were able to find Russians who'd been trafficked and start bringing them back. We also found a lot of people that were trafficked from other countries who were in Russia and coordinated uh, efforts to send them back. So it, yeah. it, over the years, I think it was tens of thousands of people went through wow. that system. Yeah, wow. it was huge. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, in 2004, you, t- you talk about going to small villages and that's where it's happening. In 2000, I think it's 2004, doesn't matter. I went to Thailand and I stayed mm-hmm. with a small tribe called a Karin tribe um, to like, I was young and I wanted to learn their, their customs and their ways. And I, I was shocked to discover that a lot of the girls born in this tribe were sold, but in the same way, they were promised a better life. They were promised they'd get jobs and whatnot, but really they were being sold to be, to be prostitutes. Um, so it's everywhere. It um, is you, everywhere. You've, you've saved, you just said tens of thousands of girls at some point, your partner was murdered and that's when you decided to come back because there was then a price on your head. Um, what is that like living, living with that knowledge that people want to kill you? Dangerous people want to kill you. Well, the, uh, that was that moment that we got too effective because we'd started working with the uh, Russian Federal Bureau of Detectives. Okay, which is what you said about the CIA, like they let you go until you're too effective. Yes. So we started working with their, that would be their equivalent of the FBI, mm-hmm. but it was at an institutional level. And we got them to raid child brothels in Moscow. And that crossed a line. <clears throat> so um, my young assistant was was killed. I don't know how, I don't know what happened, but I'm just still horrified by it. And uh, a senior officer in Russian intelligence who'd been helpful to us, one of the one of the people who'd, who'd helped protect us through the years, came to me and said, I'm taking you to the airport, you're leaving. And uh, I talked to him, I needed 10, 10 days to close everything out. And uh, then I left. And uh, have you have you been do you feel safe now? Well, what I realize is nowhere is safe. There isn't any safe place. Certainly this country isn't safe. And and uh you know you get right with the Lord and that's that's as safe as you get, I'd say. Not be foolish, but um, Yeah. Yeah. You're not um, any safer here than there. I no, well you you uh, it's said that um the government, like you went to the American government and the government actually got in the way, uh, they blocked your efforts to, to, to fix this stuff. Like, what do you mean by that? What, who specifically blocked your work? How did, how did they block it? Well, it wasn't just me. They blocked, uh, the embassy with the, with the, um, change of administration. The embassy went from being quite supportive under the Bush administration, to starting to block all uh, sort of small uh, but effective, I'd call it low-budget um, uh, international projects. Up to that point, we'd been getting support from the U.S. government, and we'd gotten funding, and we continued to get funding through the uh, the office to monitor and prevent human trafficking, the TIP office. Um, we got money from organizations all over the world, but uh, if we don't have the support as an American organization, if you lose support of the U.S. Embassy and they start sabotaging you, then uh, 
you know, it's not a lot you can do. Although it, it always enhanced my appeal to the Russians who, um, <laughs> who would come in and apologize to me for the rude behavior of the Americans. And that put me in a terrible position, this terrible position. But uh, it, I'm not the only one it happened to. It happened to multiple organizations. And so the, mm-hmm. whole, the whole fabric of the international relations effort from our country changed from sincere people going out and doing real hard work projects to the big, the big, um, so, okay. (laughs) The big government moving in. Yeah. So they, they stopped funding you. It it was just, was it just a lack of money or did they, um, did they actively try to stomp out what you were doing? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted me gone. They wanted, uh, and like I say, it wasn't just me. It was other other Americans who were being just devastated by. So they were the enabling they, it, like they were actively enabling it. And I, yes, yes, I I I got called in. We'd just done a tremendously successful public information campaign. It was the first one in Russia, and this was a this was a a grassroots campaign against human trafficking, where we had people going out on the streets in six uh, major. Russian cities parading and, and doing uh, uh, public media actions against human trafficking. We taught them how to do it, how to get the press to film it and uh, get in and get out in 10 minutes so they didn't get hurt. And uh, it was a huge success. And it was shown all over the US, Europe, all over Russia. And you think, and we did it all yeah. for on our, on our side for about a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And um the embassy was furious. Really? And yes. Tried to stop it. Tried to block us picking up our own materials. Um, tried to barricade our materials in a warehouse. What? what why? <laughs> like, what do you? What is their motivation? Do you think it to be? Why do you think they they don't want you to be successful? Well, it do you was have a, any suspicion? Yeah, sure. It was a it was a change. It was a. Um, all in all, the world of international governments moved away from human rights. I mean, the UN went from having the Human Rights Commission to having the Human Rights Council, and then they put Libya in, the, in charge of the Human Rights Council. Mm. And, um, you know, it was just, it went on and on. they're still doing that. So it's just, it became less about human rights and more about, oh, here's a nice pot of money. And... Uh, and that's what happened, I think, to um, to international aid in general. And a lot of the really big organizations that are sucking up billions of dollars, you never hear a word about those. No. no. Not a word. No. Not a word. I mean, uh, Apple, how much how much slavery is Apple responsible for or Nike, right? Yeah. You, th- there's nothing about that. In fact, they're out, be out there paying for billboards to end human trafficking when they could take – they could do – a lot of that on their own, you know, they could, they could do it without the billboards. They could end it in their own practice. Um, in your, in your childhood, what, when these memories started flooding back of what you went through, I, I got to imagine that was incredibly traumatic. I would imagine you've been in therapy. I don't know. I'm guessing. Um, I certainly would be, um, what do you remember? Like any specific missions that you were put on? Or is it more of like just vague memories? 
Oh, I think that the whole fact that I went to Russia is a result of the programming. Because uh, when I got back into, into remembering my teenage years, I remember having multiple dreams about going to Russia. I had no, no reason to have these dreams. Clearly, they're memories of programming. And uh, memories that included, um, and based on notes that I'd taken at that time when I was like 12 and 13, I wound up in Russia at the same place where this, this training mission, where I was trained to go, I, I wound up there. Of course, it was 40 years too late, the objective of the training mission, which was to get to the to the communications core of the former Soviet Union, which was in the basement of the Ross Telecom building, which is right next to the building where I wound up having an office. Um, mm. That's not a coincidence. No. And I did get down there. Of course, it, in the 80s, they stopped using it. So it was like a, it was they. I said, well, can I get down there? They'd go, yeah, sure. Yeah, there's nothing down there now. <laughs> and hmm. and uh, so I think, I think it was in my head to go to Russia. And I think the fact that when I got there, it seemed familiar and uh, that I wound up in exactly in, in the city of Moscow, which is 12 million people, that I would wind up in the building next to Ross Telecom without yeah. realizing it until... Um, so you think your your programming led to some of your actions later in life, which then yes. triggered memories because the programming sent you there in the first place. Yes, it's pretty nuts. Yes. Yeah. And I and I did meet Russians who were in Russian intelligence who knew my uncle. Oh, okay. They'd all been at Bletchley Park together. Right. So these programs uh, from the CIA the whole purpose of them is just intelligence gathering on external threats or like, wh why are they doing this? Oh, no, I, I think that the, the whole thrust of at least the program that I was in was to train world leaders, not just okay. in government, but in every aspect, education and science and technology. And then when they have complete control over these people, in other words, they control them body and soul. Mm -hmm. Then you you give them every earthly reward that can be given. So you have these multi-billionaires, tech giants who can't write code. How did they wow. get there? Why so are they you, in that? Position? So you think this is like some kind of long-term strategy to kind of change the directory of of humankind, really? Like yes, we've seen an erosion of of uh, ethics. Uh, we've seen an erosion of uh, religion. We've seen a, an erosion of liberty. You think that's some kind of long-term plan for what greater purpose? I think the the greater purpose is globalization and the and the one world order. So power, power, but also uh, annihilation. And this is this is a concept. This is. This is going to stretch your mind a bit here. My mind's already stretched. So. Oh, well, let's <laughs> let's finish stretching it. Uh, the whole green thing. I heard about green since about I was green energy. So no, no, it has nothing to do with energy. Nothing to do with chlorophyll. Nothing to do with 
plants or trees. What's the whole or, green thing? I don't know. I'm going I'm, I'm to tell you that. But every the head of every project was Dr. Green. And the green, um, a large part of the programming uh, starts with, uh, as a child, they would tie me to this wheel that looked like a, a yin-yang wheel with various symbols that changed at different times. And they would spin the wheel. And they showed this in the 2012 opening ceremony of the Olympics. You should go back and watch that. But okay. they tied the child to the wheel, tied me to the wheel. They would spin it around faster and faster while these people in robes stood around and, and chanted, there is no light, there is no dark, there is no good, there is no bad, there is no night, there is no day, there is no you know food, there is no water, there's, you know, there's nothing, nothing. Nothing means anything. Mm. And then it would go faster and faster and faster. And at the end of the chant, there's only green. It's the end of the chant. And at that point, you are supposed to be so dissociated and so lost that you are obliterated. And in that state of green, that state of, of divine obliteration, you are one with their God which isn't our God, but that is, that is what it is. And that's why we're getting green, green, green. And I sincerely believe that these people are just like I carried out this archaic program going to Russia and, and mm -hmm. actually getting myself to this impossible place 40 years too late. They're 40, they're, they're 50, 60 years too late. This stuff was embedded in them after World War II. So a lot of these people, they're acting on something. They, they, were, they were mind controlled and they're acting off of that energy and kind of paying it forward. Kind they're of. stuck in it. Yeah. They cannot. I've, I've been to CFR meetings when the head of a very important council that you would recognize, but I'm not going to say, um, got up and said, we're in trouble. We're out of script. And that's the problem. They're, they're on, they're stuck on this script. It's this nutty script that was invented by these wacko scientists in the sixties and seventies, but embedded in these people's head heads. And then the program worked and they're placed in all these positions of power and they move forward and they start changing the world. And then they perpetuate this, this soulless, awful stuff. And they're stuck. They're not going to change. They can't change. They're 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 fixed. You know, yeah. I didn't give up my soul. I I struggled to change. It wasn't easy, and I still manifest aspects of the programming. I'm sure of it. But they're yeah. stuck, and I recognize it. And you hear the same thing. They say the same things. Nobody's telling that to them now. They're repeating what they heard when they were little kids, and now they're my age. Well, what you what you said about uh, the the ceremony they put you through and what you saw in the in the 2012 Olympics, that kind of thing sounds a lot like um, what you hear about these secret societies like Skull and Bones or, you know, the ones going on. And uh, I don't know the names of them up in San Francisco at the Grove. And um, you hear you hear things like that. And that's what that sounds like to me. And that that's creepy. Um, so we're. I, I'm willing to stretch my mind and go there with you. Like this is really kind of mind blowing. I don't really know what to make of it, but I'm willing to go there and and try and understand it. So you're you're saying that some scientists started these mind control things in the 60s and 70s, and off the momentum of that, 
the world is kind of going down the shitter of, of negative energy. Yeah. Perpetuating. So what's the way out of it? Well, yeah, think about it. We've probably got a thousand of those scientists who are, who are rabid Nazis turned loose on the kids of, of uh, the children of promise in this country because these kids were, they had money. They were going to go to college and be, be promoted into positions of power. They worked on a lot of kids that they just totally destroyed. But I'm, yeah. I'm just focusing on that because that's what I was involved in. So then that perpetuated and that perpetuated. And, and the ones that get promoted are the ones who gave up their souls. They gave up their ability to reason. They gave up their, their willingness to, to question. And uh, so here they are in positions of power and they, they, they cannot have original thoughts. They don't have them and, and they are not connected to uh, Christianity or, or to, to God. They are alone except for their script. So yes, that, I believe to, I, I, you know, that's the world from my small perspective. There's a lot of agendas at play, but I see this one playing out and it's terribly dangerous because yeah. we keep thinking, oh, they're going to come to their senses. Oh, they're going to wake up and realize how insane it is to, to bankrupt the country and to do all these, to fire all your healthcare workers. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, none of it makes any sense. No, but if you're stuck absolutely. in, if you're stuck in a genocidal green script from the 1960s, which is very familiar to me, and you can't change and you have the power and the money to, to carry these things out, there might not be any brain behind this at all, you know? Yeah. Well, when you see everything that's happened in this country and worldwide for the last two years, all of this sounds much more plausible than it would have sounded to me two years ago. I'll, I'll tell you that. Like, it sounds much more believable when you see that some of the decisions that are being made. And when you look at people out there like like Zuckerberg and Bezos and even like Kamala Harris, like when you watch them on TV, they seem soulless, right? So we want to say that they're um, they're psycho or what, what's the word for people who can't can't relate Sociopath. to other people? Sociopaths. Well, they are, but they're just fucking zombies too. Maybe they are they zombies. It's it's more than that. It's it. They gave they broke under the system. They gave up their souls. They cannot change. Their their program is stuck in them, and we can't reason with them. And part of their program from day one, I started hearing about genocide, particularly black genocide. The, mm -hmm. the, the Nazis were particularly determined to wipe out the black race. And um, I actually turned in a paper in junior high school, which raised eyebrows because I said, well, there won't be any black people in 1982. Hmm. And that got me sent to <laughs> Psychologist, I'd never met a black person. Right. You know, it was just what I was hearing in these ridiculous classes. But that was their program. Genocide yeah. was their thing. And I knew Bill Gates's parents. They were in Seattle, and um, they were very active eugenicists. They yeah. wanted. They wanted the. They were behind the beginning that's of Planned that's Parenthood. Well known. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, Planned Parenthood. It started at Group Health in Seattle when I was a medical student and I nearly quit medical school when they made me uh, assign me to that. I said, no, mm. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
I wish I'd done more to object to it, but I was only 21 and sure. I barely had a, you know, I was sure they were going to kick me out of medical school, but I refused to have anything to do with it. But that was his parents. Yeah. 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 That's, that, that's creepy on its face by itself. Um, so all of this, it, it comes, let me ask you this, these, these, these Nazi scientists, like it's well-documented with the eugenics and all the creepy things they were up to. And then we did um, with Operation Paperclip, we brought these scientists here. Um, why? Like, why were those scientists not, why were they not put to death? Like, we know the evil things they did and we employed them. We, we shouldn't say we, our government knowingly brought them here and put them to work. Why? I think that, I think the Dulles brothers were monsters. I, I, uh, there were worms in that bud, you know, there were, um, and, and my uncle, uh, was one of the founders of the NSA. So at that time he was at Bletchley Park and then Arlington Hall OSS. And, uh, and, uh, he, the only few times I'd been with him, he talked about some of his superiors and uh, how frightening they were. And, and uh, yeah, that all that started with a very small number of people who were psychotic Satanists and uh, pedophiles and uh, eugenicists. And they thought this was a great thing and they had money, so they funded it. Yeah, well, you know the, the the pedophile thing when when a story like Epstein breaks, um, like it sounds ludicrous. Like people in our government are pedophiles, but then a story like that breaks, and then the guy, all the mystery surrounding his death, and and all the the famous and powerful people who he was with. You know, there's documented history of him hanging with people like the Clintons, like Donald Trump, like wh whoever. Like who knows what was going on there it becomes a lot more believable um so again let me ask you this your you mentioned your uncle your father was was it your your father's brother your your uncle no, Same, my mother's family? brother okay my mother's brother so but you think your father knew what was going on and at some point you you came to this memory you remembered all this like have you healed from that like what how what have you done to get past knowing that your dad sold you into this life i haven't gotten past this you know i overcompensate by doing things like i've done including coming out and talking about this but i don't know how it is to be any different since i've never been any different yeah. so um incredible but I would say I, I want to bring this out and share this information with people, and particularly now when people are starting to see that, yeah, it, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm probably not the one to come up with a solution as to what to do with these people. I know so many of them, and uh, I'm still programmed to a certain extent. I, I have no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, much like I, I said, I'm. I think I'm more open to a message like this now than I would have been two years ago. I think the whole, I think a lot of people in the world are opening their minds to the the possibilities that there really is some real evil in, in power out there, but we need to know what we can do about it. Like it feels if all, if everything you're saying, if your whole story is true, all right, let's, let's go with it. It's true. 
it paints a pretty bleak and hopeless picture. Like who's in charge of getting us out of this mess? We are. So what do we do? We do what human beings can do, which they can't do. These people have become inhuman. And so what do we have? We have our connection to God. We have our Savior, Jesus. We have our uh, our spiritual life, which should be nurtured and, and uh, celebrated. And we have the ability to sing. You know, when human beings are singing, that's, that drives them mad. The... And we can laugh. You know, human beings are joyous. We have joy in our souls. And I think a lot of the way I survive through all of this is I see the humor in all kinds of things. And I help people, other people to see the humor in things. One of the ways I really got along with Russians is they have great senses of humor. They're very funny people. They're like the British in a lot of ways. So get rid of fear. You know, they control us through fear. And for That's God's for sure. sakes, turn off your, your television sets. You know, stop listening to the mainstream news. Don't use the Alexas and the, and the uh, devices. They've got subliminal messages just pouring through them all the time. Main to, you know, keeping people in fear. If we're not in fear, then they have no control over us. And if, we're, if we look at how stupid this is, mm-hmm. it's stupid. I mean, a thousand... Nutty scientists from Germany were turned loose in our country. And I'm sure the money has been rolling in through the Federal Reserve System, which is why we've never been able to audit it. And uh, thousands of American lives have been destroyed, but we're still here. Yeah, we're still here. We're still laughing. We're still having families. We're still eating hot dogs. Oh, God, never eat a hot dog. I love hot dogs, <laughs> but you're, you're right. Um, you know, when you get upset about government and I certainly do my fair share of getting upset about government, all it takes is people to be united. Like they really don't have any power over the people other than the illusion of power that we all buy into. Us, and us buying into the idea is that if we reason with them enough and we ask enough, they'll fix yeah. it for us. No. Well, they're not going to. No. It's not going to happen. And these people are probably nowhere near as smart as you or I. And they're in their office and their their goal is to be reelected and to stay in office and to do insider trading. Apparently, that seems to be a big thing. Nancy Pelosi is practically a billionaire. She's been in office her whole life. How does that happen? They're they're all like that. Not just I don't mean to single her out that they all come out of government and they're billionaires or they're soon to be billionaires. And that's you know? why they're there. They're not yes. there to no. go out on a limb and no. and help some program. Yeah. So how long have you been uh, publicly sharing this story? And what has the public reaction been to it mostly? Well, I published uh, my book, Sparky. Um, that came out a year ago. And I expected to get you know, attacked and dragged through the mud and all this, but it didn't happen. People actually have been reading it. It's gotten a couple dozen five-star reviews on Amazon. And uh, I've been doing interviews on it. I think the timing was right. Yeah, I, I think, think so. 10 years ago, actually, I, I, I did try to bring this up at like a, a, a DHS conference 10 years ago when I was speaking. Mm-hmm. And it, people just looked at me like, 
I said, yeah. well, I was a victim of trafficking. And they looked at me and said, no, you weren't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can believe that. Like I said, I think a lot more people are open to this right now. And I can imagine like when, when you hear when I personally, I hear a story like yours, the the instinct is to dismiss it as crazy talk. That's oh, I would. I would. Yeah, it sounds nuts to me. That's the instinct. But I'm more open to these kind of things now, having lived what we've all lived for the past couple of years. There's no doubt there's some evil shit going on, which means there's always been some evil shit going on. And we're coasting on the momentum of something that started a long time ago. So uh, tell people about the Red Pill Expo, where they can get your books and just where they can find out more about you because we're running out of time here. Well, you can look me up on the website. Uh, I have a website, which is julietangle.com. And uh, my books are there. Uh, Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic, and also my book about uh, my work in Russia, which is Angels Over Moscow. Great work. And uh, they're both available also on Amazon and on my publisher's website, which is Trine Day. And Red Pill Expos are great. This will be my third one. No, actually, it's my fourth one. I get so much out of meeting these wonderful mix of people that come together in different places all over the country. And it'll be November 6th and 7th in Lafayette, Louisiana. Okay. And I think the state of Louisiana is pretty excited about having us. Yeah, I got to be honest. I never heard of Red Pill Expo till about a month ago. Uh, as mentioned last week, we had uh, G. Edward Griffin on and I'll be there. Ne- I'll be there next year. Like, oh, you <laughs> shouldn't miss I gotta it. See. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth it. It's worth it. And he's turning 90 at this one. Wow. We're going to celebrate his he's 90. turning 90. Are you kidding? Yeah. Can you believe oh, my. it? No, I can't. I would have thought he was 70 or something. He's, he's sharp as a tack. Wow. He's got some good genes going there. I would say so. All right, doctor. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. You're welcome. And it's nice to meet you. All right. Good night. <laughs>